Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. That's bombas.com/acast. Code acast. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars pod. Happy Trafalgar Day, folks. Unless, of course, you're French or Spanish, in which case, commiserations, I guess. Being Trafalgar Day, we're going to be highly predictable. And we're going to talk in a sort of roundabout way-ish, sort of, about Trafalgar, or rather a production that is looking very kind of um, neatly at Nelson, it's titled sort of Trafalgar TV, um, and I have a, a Trafalgar expert, I think it's to say, fair to say, in the house. I'm joined by Adam Preston. He's an award-winning filmmaker and screenwriter and novelist, uh, began his career in documentaries, approve of that, um, working as a researcher on Greek Fire, which was a series about the influence of ancient Greece on the world. He's also worked at um, direct cinema company Maisel's Films. Hopefully I've pronounced that right. I'm getting nods. That's encouraging. In New York. Um, and also did a stint as a production manager in London. Then became a freelance writer and filmmaker. Has written for The Times, The Financial Times, The Times Literary Supplement. And has worked as a consultant and content creator for Trafalgar Way, the heritage organisation. And he is the founder and director of Particular Productions. That's quite an exhausting CV. I don't know how you have found the time for it. But welcome, Adam. Lovely to see you. How are you doing? I'm very good. Yeah. Happy Trafalgar Day to you, too. And uh, likewise, uh, uh, commiserations or whatever the right word is to those of uh, a different flag who who don't celebrate today. Indeed. Uh, yeah. Shame. I mean, it's always nice to sort of raise a glass, but... Um... You know, you can understand why. Uh, before we dive into the particulars about Trafalgar TV and the the period drama, um, I want to start with you, if I may. Um, some folks might know you through Twitter and um, your Trafalgar TV um, social media handle. I don't know if you've jumped ship to all of the others, but we'll we'll get to um, how people can follow you in due course. But talk us through your background and connection to all of this. Clearly, you've got an interest in Trafalgar stuff, given your your work with the Trafalgar Way. 
Yeah, well, going straight, going right back, um, growing up, we had uh, on the wall in our house uh, a framed object, which I was fascinated by. And it's actually uh, a ticket for the funeral procession from Whitehall to St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, and so that was my sort of introduction to the subject of Lord Nelson. Um, and of course, I had the Ladybird book about Nelson. Uh, later on, I read biographies. And my uh, passion and obsession um, was also screenwriting. Uh, you know, that was the craft that I threw myself into uh, when I was sort of in my early 20s. And so in a blinding flash, at some point, these two things came together because when you know the story of Nelson, you know, not just the headlines, but when you when you know the story, you can't help feeling it's one of the great, great true stories in world history. It does have an enormous amount going for it as a story, pure and simple, um, because you've got this extraordinary uh, uh, man who just produces these breathtaking victories. But as he does that, he falls in love with this very unsuitable married woman. So that is dragging him down. And, and that's got that gives him this very human element. And it's also very sexy. Emma Hamilton is a very sexy figure. Um, she is um, a beautiful woman. She was world famous in her day. And she's absolutely fascinating. So it's unusual in a military hero to also have such a messy, terribly messy private life. Other military heroes look positively dignified next to Nelson, who, you know, this this affair really dragged him down. He was, you've only got to look at the, sat, the satirical pictures of him in his day. You know, there's, he, he lost the respect of the people whose respect he, desperately needed in order to continue this rise up through the you know through the ranks and uh yeah so it just struck me as a really amazing story so I began the process of you know looking into how one could do a modern version of this story uh in as a, as a film initially and then later because we are in this great age the golden age of television, if you like, um, it naturally evolved into a television project. Yeah, there's a lot of logic behind that, isn't there? I think a lot of this interview is going to go down that route of the craft behind this. So folks, if you're expecting sort of a blow by blow run through of what happens at the Battle of Trafalgar, I hate to disappoint you, but that is not the focus of today. We've done that before. Scroll back through the previous catalogue. I sat down with John Morwood. We did Trafalgar in emphatic fashion i want to focus especially with that that film looming the ridley scott production incoming and lots of people sort of sitting there on their high horses with lots of opinions on whether or not ridley scott has inverted commas got it right um and yes you will have noticed the disdain and scorn in my voice there folks um not at ridley scott but at people sort of sitting in judgment of film directors without really understanding the challenges that they're under i think a lot of what we're going to discuss is going to be focused on that it's interesting for me as somebody who sort of is is very much at the periphery but is aware uh, when it comes to tv history but is aware of the conversations that are going on the, and the challenges and the the frictions at play within all of this to see 
this move towards more kind of period drama and away from the film not not away from the film genre obviously Ridley Scott is is an example of how that's not been the case and there are plenty of biopics and um you know films looking at conflict to to scratch that itch but there does seem to be a much greater affinity now for bigger scale productions and um and doing the story i feel a little bit more justice why do you feel there's this willingness to i guess invest because that's that's fundamentally part of the challenge here right if you do if it goes longer it costs lots of money why is there that shift is this a kind of a streaming service more investment going in more money therefore being raised in terms of income to enable that have we just kind of seen a culture shift that now enables a better kind of handling of history when it comes to drama well i think the first thing is that the age of streaming does give storytellers the chance to tell stories in more depth um because if you can hook an audience in they they will come along for the ride you know they'll binge watch it over several nights if if you can hold their attention so it does create an opportunity to tell stories in more depth but of course you know period drama is very expensive so we're not i wouldn't say what we are they're not they're not hand over the fist throwing money at period filmmakers and particularly right now as i speak everything has come to a stop because of the uh writer strike um and i know people who work specifically in period drama i've got a very good friend who's a costume designer who's who's uh out of work at the moment and desperately waiting for this strike to end um but yes this new long format multi-series phenomenon does give you the chance to tell stories in more detail i've always believed that you should treat audiences as essentially intelligent and i do think that with this story there's an opportunity to now give a full and thorough account of this amazing story for i mean every era that tells this story and the nelson story has been told throughout the history of the moving image there was a silent film i think there was two silent films um there was um of course the famous uh wartime film which starred Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee. Now, the purpose of that film, you know, had a clear uh, propaganda purpose, which was the decision was made, you know, this is a great way to show how in war you have to sacrifice people, people die. And that was sort of the the way it was framed. Um, It made people feel better about losing a loved one in the Second World War. And it's a very brilliant film. It was Churchill's favourite film. And I think there's a good reason for that. If you are Churchill and hundreds of thousands of men are dying, a film that makes you feel ba- better about the sacrifice of lives is, is likely to end up being your favourite film. It literally made him feel better about what he was doing. Um, there was a film in the 70s, which I think was a missed opportunity. Uh, Glenda Jackson playing Emma Hamilton. Well, what a bit of miscasting, not because Glenda Jackson wasn't a great actress, but she certainly wasn't an Emma Hamilton. You know, Emma was a curvaceous, sensual person, whereas Glenda Jackson is a sort of ascetic figure, a a bony, angular figure, not, not an Emma Hamilton at all. But my feeling and my instinct is that for this age, we're ready to now really, really meet Nelson and find out who he really was. You know, I think it, a grown-up audience 
deserve to be told the full story, which, in my opinion, is a fantastic story. It's got incredible emotional highs and lows. And what it does with Nelson is it introduces you to him as this flawed individual. You know, he's a he's a hero with feet of clay. Um, many people know or think they know his flaws, but I'm not sure if they really do understand uh, what his flaws were. Because one of the interesting things about Nelson was because he didn't live to protect his legacy. He died in battle. He laid down his life in battle, you know. So he he didn't get to carve his, he didn't get to have any control over his legacy. And much of the opposition to him uh, and much of the um, criticism of Nelson um, was given a lot of free reign. There was no one really to protect his name. Emma herself, you know, there was no one... To, really to protect her um and the the negative um publicity the negative message about them survives to this day incredibly so i feel like my my project is a chance to adjust that and put it right but i don't mean that i um my film entirely blows a positive trumpet for nelson what i mean is that it's nuanced and the 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 showing of nelson's negative side is based on really deep research. And that's one of the things that really characterizes this project. It really comes from deep research. I spent three years focused entirely on researching the entire story, meaning that I wasn't just looking at Nelson and Emma. I looked very closely at Sir William Hamilton, who's a really interesting character, somebody who, you know, I've even been influenced by reading and learning about Sir William. You know, he's a great character. I got to grips with the Napoleonic Wars because I wanted to understand what was behind this. It's it's a rabbit hole. Of course, I fell down the rabbit hole and just became obsessed with everything. <laughs> but in terms of making a film, you know, my challenge was to distill this chaos of very well-documented history. We know more about a lot of these people. Certainly, I know more about Nelson than I do about very close members of my own family because his letters survive and so many letters from that era do survive that you can end up really, really knowing an enormous amount about these people. But out of this chaos of, of research, I had to, you know, create a compelling drama that has a shape, has a satisfying sort of roller coaster ride, which with the highs and the lows in the right place, delivering the emotions, you know, and that involves shaping it to, from from this case. You're you're trying to shape it, but I was really keen not to distort. Um, and I won't pretend that I that that there are some areas where I haven't distorted a bit. It's just absolutely part of the craft of screenwriting. When you look at a, a film like uh, The King's Speech, you know the it's highly manipulative. The, the audience is is heavily manipulated in, in that film and. It's the classic thing in every film. You've always got to make out that the whole of the future of humanity is riding on this. So they, that that scriptwriter managed to make you feel that the whole future of humanity depended on this this man making this speech at that moment and getting it right. And that's very clever. Um, and you literally end up believing that. Um, and that's that's very powerful screenwriting. I wouldn't say that it was necessarily true. But there is some truth to it, and therefore all he's done is he's he's focused on that on that um, slither of truth and sort of pumped it up. But I can talk a little bit about some of the 
some of the issues that that I that I had to deal with. Um, if you're interested in that. Oh, we absolutely are. There are so many rabbit holes that we can dive down yeah. here. Um, I think we will we'll probably get to the, the challenges in in a little bit. But um, it struck me as you were saying this that there is an interesting parallel. Yes, folks, we're going to keep talking about the the Napoleon film over the course of the next few months, probably even years. Um, of course, we are. But the thing that I've been very encouraged by. Um, is the the sense that we're getting from the trailer and from the interviews that this is not just let's take Napoleon, let's stick him on a pedestal and let's all scream vive l'empereur at the screen for an hour and 30 minutes. Instead, there seems to be a a sort of uh, a dialogue between Napoleon and Josephine and the way in which Josephine influences Napoleon and perhaps vice versa. And where a lot of the perception about Josephine has been predominantly sexualized, not tonight, Josephine, let's emphasize the fact that she was older than um, Napoleon by not a vast amount, I have to say. Um, and, and certainly in terms of age gaps in the modern era, there's it, it, not much going on there. And in terms of age gaps during this period, not that unusual for actually an older guy to marry a much younger woman and of course, nobody flinches um, because of double standards within society that are carried through to today. And we're not getting that. Or at least my sense is that that's not what we're going to get. We're going to get a much more powerful Josephine. We're going to see the Josephine that influences Napoleon and shapes how he becomes the man that he becomes. And I think that's fantastic. And it's interesting to hear you talk about um, about Emma Hamilton, not quite in the same way, but in a similar kind of vein of can we... Can we be more honest about who Emma was? And yes, she she's widely regarded as um, a, a vivacious and very beautiful character, but there is much more to her than just, hey, she looked pretty. Uh, and it, it's nice to see that. I was very struck when um, a number of years ago, I was doing a an interview with History Hack and we had Julian Fellows on as part of his role within the Sharp series. And he was saying that the big challenge that you have for this period is trying to make sure that female voices do actually feature properly. Do you think that that's an easy thing to achieve? Because Julian sort of seemed to create the um, impression that you're, it, it's a real fight in order to try and make those voices heard. Is that your perception? Well, I um, I think that with Sharp or you know anything like that where the focus is on the military and on men going to war, then you're going to struggle to bring women in because they simply just they weren't there in the numbers, the same numbers as men. And you know, in those days, the business of fighting wars was was entirely male. What what I, I've haven't I haven't had to do any sort of forcing of women into this story because the reality is that the story of nelson um is inextricably tied up with the story of emma uh, and you know emma's story is as fantastic as nelson's so i tell the two in parallel uh to the point where they meet and then it becomes the story of nelson and emma um and you know emma really uh, gripped me as a character. Some people would argue that as a man, I can't write, you know, uh, a female character. Um, and I protest against that because I believe in the human imagination, you know, I and I, I 
I will, you know, wave that flag until until the day I die. That's not to say that I haven't, you know, tried incredibly hard to put myself in in the position of a woman. Maybe maybe that's impossible. I don't know. But I'm learning all the time in telling the story of Emma. And what really strikes me about Emma is that, you know, what she has in common with Nelson is that they both have experienced horrendous setbacks. And that's kind of how I frame it. You know, episode one shows the two central uh, setbacks of their lives. With with Nelson, it's the loss of his arm um, at the Battle of Santa Cruz. Um, because the loss of that arm wasn't just, you know, the physical um, horror of losing, having your arm sawn off, but also it was a disaster. It was a failure. Um, and it looked like it was the end, you know. This was such an ambitious person, you know. He really, really dreamed of glory. He wanted to be a hero, and it looked like that was all over. That was that to me was the central sort of disaster and trauma of his life. With Emma, I think she suffered a, you know, a myriad of horrors as a very young woman in London. You know, we know now that she was a prostitute. We know that she was hired out uh, long term to Sir Harry uh, Featherstone Hall. I think that's how you pronounce it, um, of Up Park. Um, we know that she was forced to give up a child that she had uh, almost certainly by Sir Harry. Um, it was a girl called Emma Carew. Um, and that, to me, is the central um, trauma of her early life, having to having to give up this child. And she had to give it up because her protector, Charles Greville, would not have the, the child in the house. You know, he was like, I'm going to look after you. I'm going to protect you. But I can't have a child knocking about here. You're going to have to get rid of that. You know, so she had to hand that over to um, a sort of paid child carer in, uh, I think it was um, Manchester or somewhere like that, somewhere far away. And that, of course, for, for, for her would have been would have been totally traumatic. And I think that that is a key moment in her development where she had to sort of switch off a part of herself in order to survive. Um, and my feeling is that that part of herself um, was, was partially healed by finding true love with Nelson, or at least, you know, she, she felt with Nelson that she had found the man that she really didn't have to compromise uh, for, in other words, she could be her true self. But whether there was whether that was even possible, you know, for someone who'd had to transform herself so much by that point, that's kind of that's kind of the question mark. But um, yeah, I mean, absolutely fascinating, and I'm I'm always learning more about Emma. Um, one of the things I'm looking at, because at the moment my my series begins with um, Emma at the point where she's about to give up her baby, Emma. Keru. Um, and with Nelson, I begin with the Battle of Santa Cruz. So I, I begin with these two central traumas. But I would love to do Emma's early life. You know, I, I'm really interested in in doing that. Um, and that's something I've been I've been talking about with uh, with with one um, possible um, executive producer of the series. I'm interested in how you'd go about doing that because it strikes me the challenge of course is is that sort of 90 second rule isn't is it 90 seconds that I think they say you have within TV that kind of thing of people are channel hopping and their their fingers hovering over the remote and can you grip them to the point where they put the remote down and they invest 
And it strikes me that what you're covering here and the way, the way in which you're, you're jumping into it is a really obvious, but also very visceral and engaging starting point. So if you were to go about doing that, and obviously, you know, that's part of the process and a lot of thought and time goes into that crafting. Is it one of those things that you would use a device like a flashback um, or is that a, a plot device that you're not particularly fond of? How do you go about creating that challenge? Because inevitably the early part of somebody's life is is pretty mediocre. That's that's true of all of us. You know, we're born, we're raised, we go to school, we do all of these things, yeah, yeah. climb the greasy pole. So how do you slot that into a story whilst retaining the attention? Well, I think that Emma's early life um, is absolutely packed with, with incredible um, jeopardy. Uh, and incident and i i envisage that as um a glimpse first of all of what she was facing as a life and that is as an undermaid in a london middle class house and we we probably regard that as quite a sort of comfortable situation but those maids i mean i, I remember looking once at the um the, the numbers for how many of them were killed by falling into fires. It was astonishing. Um, it was a horrendous life. They used to sleep on the floors in the kitchens, you know, um, and they were they were really slaves. I mean, let's face it, that that era, if you were a servant, you were very similar to a slave. I think the pay was very low. You were you were you had very little economic freedom, really. You were just given enough to just just survive you know so that's what emma was looking at so i was thinking of opening with a with a sort of uh a portrait of life for an undermaid and a, a spirited person like emma and, and what would it would have meant to her to see that as her her life you know it just so happened and there's a lot of luck in the stories of these people but she happened to be undermaid with another young girl who later became one of the most famous actresses um of her of the of the age and she reappeared much later in um in the story um so that character sort of reappears but i think possibly those two girls they would have they would have had dreams and they would have egged each other on and of course they both lost those jobs quickly and when when emma did lose that job she was flung into uh you know london of that period with no safety net. And she worked for a while um, as a sort of servant in the Drury Lane Theatre. Um, she faced, she got fired from there in the winter. I mean, she would have been facing homelessness. She would have been dead within weeks. These were absolutely incredibly desperate uh, circumstances to find yourself in. And that I think is why she ended up eventually, uh, she was, cause she was so beautiful. She was being offered, men were, constantly offering money to have sex with her and eventually of course she does end up in a in a in a brothel but at one point she ends up working for dr graham i don't know if you've come across him but he he ran a sort of um a quack doctor's emporium in uh, i think it was near the strand where he offered electricity as a cure for all kinds of ills and he even had a celestial bed where wealthy you had to be wealthy because it was 50 pounds a night i mean that is a massive fee at that time but he guaranteed that your wife would would become pregnant if you had sex with her on the celestial bed and emma her job was to pose semi-naked in a sort of diaphanous gown as the goddess hygieia 
Um, and I love to think that is where Sir Harry Featherstone Hall probably saw her and he was like, gosh, she's a bit all right, you know, and, and sort of decided that he had to had to have her. This is so colourful, all this stuff, and it's not hard to shape that into a sort of high stakes survival game for somebody probably with ideals and dreams, um, but who has to face this grubby reality that her only route out of this is her looks. There's simply no other route out of it. So how do you survive that? You know, I I would imagine that, you know, they would have been trying to use uh, birth control. And of course, birth control was, was just, it was just a sort of uh, a, a guessing game. You know, they were using vinegar and sponges and all sorts of, you know, and I, I, I'd love to get into the, the realities of those things in order to bring it to life, you know, and show how at the end of that episode, she manages to negotiate for herself a kind of protection, Charles Greville. But Greville is is really keeping her as almost like a caged bird. You know, he's got all these rules that he lays down about how she's not allowed to uh, consort with any of her old friends and acquaintances. You know, the child has to be given up. She's got to behave in a certain way. She has to behave as the penitent. She literally is required to dress as a kind of penitent. So this guy is just totally sort of um controlling this 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 woman so clearly it's not a happy situation but she's physically safe you know and that is all that she could really hope for probably at that point and that is the that is the point we reach i think um at the end of that episode and i very much see each episode as a film in its own right it has to work as a standalone it has to tell a story it has to have a conclusion but it's also got to leave you wanting to know what happens next, which, of course, it inevitably does. So that's how I would shape that. Um, and uh, one idea is to is to bring Kate Williams on board for that one. I'm going to get hold of her and see if she wants to collaborate on that one, because she uh, is, is a world expert on Emma. And I think she could bring a lot to it. But that's something that we'll have to see. I don't know whether she's going to be uh, up for that. Again, so many directions uh, to go down. We will get to the challenges in just a second, but I'm curious where you're thinking you would then go from there. Are you able to, and I appreciate some of this, you need to kind of keep to yourself in order to protect sort of the intellectual property and, and the copyright behind it all. But are you able to give us sort of a, the vaguest of, of sketches of how you would break this down? Yeah, well, at the moment, what is fully written is five episodes which culminate in... The Battle of Trafalgar, but also tell a bit of, because um, it's a tragedy, ultimately, what happened, which is that, you know, Trafalgar left Emma unprotected. Uh, Nelson's request to the nation was that she be taken care of, but it was regarded as too scandalous to um, to do that. And various terrible things happened, which which resulted in Emma dying in terrible poverty in, in Calais. But um, yeah, so there's five fully written series. And at the moment, it, uh, it begins with, you know, Emma as a sort of prisoner of, of Sir Charles Greville, this rather pale um, and uh, controlling, um, almost a sort of bit of a nerdy figure. You know, he collected gems and, and uh, I think he saw Emma as, as perhaps somebody who gave him a bit of glamour. He, he actually made money um he 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 started to do very well by getting uh, artists to paint her and that was the beginning of emma being painted i think she ended up being painted more than any other 
um, female in the whole of history, apart from Queen Victoria. I think that is the incredible um, uh, statistic on that, which blew my head off when I read it. But the reason was that these paintings were selling. Aristocrats had to have a painting of Emma. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting into nitty gritty, but my my the, the, the arc, it begins with Emma, this awful, cynical um, arrangement where Sir Charles Greville, despite the fact that he's doing well selling paintings of Emma, he suddenly thinks, this is all very well. I've got this wonderful mistress that is, you know, kind of giving me a, a, a bit of a reputation. And that is ruining my chances of finding a rich wife. I need to get rid of this woman. So he comes up with the plot of sending her to Naples to his uncle, Sir William Hamilton, who is uh, a widow, widower. Uh, he is the minister in plenipotentiary to the court of St. James in, in Naples. Um, and his, his, Charles's idea is, I'll send her to Sir William. She'll end up being his mistress and I'll kill two birds with one stone because if he's, if he's got this wonderful mistress, he's not going to marry again and have legitimate children because he was childless. And Charles had his eye on, on um, ultimately uh, getting the inheritance of Sir William Hamilton. So he thought, send Emma. He'll be taken up with her for his last few years um, and I'll inherit everything when he dies. That was his cynical ploy. And when Emma arrives in Naples, and I mean, you know, a lot of my film is set in Naples. It's, it's where so much of this story happens and, and some really important stuff happened in Naples. But, you know, this 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 other love story took place, which is Emma arrives in Naples at the age of 21. She's only 21 at this point. So William is 50, you know, and I, I know people will be grossed out by that. But that that was... So that was Greville's plan, you know, that this older man would, would have this young mistress. But Emma, by this point, she was just fed up of being used in this way. She just wasn't having it. And she kind of held out, you know, and she blossomed in Naples. So William uh, spent a lot of, lavished a lot of care on her in, in that he allowed her to gain an education in Naples. Um, she had singing teachers, dancing teachers, language teachers, and she learned very fast. She ended up speaking fluent uh, Italian and, and could actually speak the street um, Italian that they spoke in Naples, which was a very useful um, uh, thing to have. But um, so she absolutely blossomed. And this this uh, court, this this scene in Naples was a little bit freer than London in that a woman like Emma could actually be acceptable in certain situations. And she very cleverly fought off the advances of the King of Naples, Ferdinand, who was a, a, a bit of a monstrous character, a bit of an idiot and a monstrous character. All he wanted to do was shoot game all day, every day, and shag everything inside, you know. A very big argument for ending monarchies at the time. <laughs> she, Emma, very cleverly and very, and, and in a very clever way, fought off his advances without insulting him. And the queen, who was the real power there, Maria Carolina, noticed this and kind of was grateful to Emma and recognized that she was smart and befriended her. And Emma turned herself into a power in the land um, just through character, through personality. She became a close confidant and friend of Maria Carolina. And Sir William realised that this person was not 
just a mistress. This was a remarkable human being. And he chose to marry her, which was an extraordinary, you know, in terms of achievements, you know, this was about as much as any human being achieved in that entire age to go from being a peasant and a, and a prostitute to becoming Lady Hamilton, wife of the ambassador in Naples, was, was an astonishing climb. So just that episode alone tells that extraordinary story of this, of this transformation into uh, Lady Hamilton. And you know, unfortunately, she never was quite acceptable to the uh, English king because, I mean, they were, I mean, of course, they were all hypocrites. The king himself had mistresses, um, monstrous hypocrisy. But they made this terrible mistake when they came to England and stayed in London to get married because they had to get married in London for it to be recognised properly in those days as a wedding, as a marriage. And they stupidly shared the hotel room before the wedding. And somehow the court got to hear about this. And that and that meant Emma was never invited to court. She was never recognized as a, you know, as a proper lady, if you like. She was never presented to the queen, um, which was, you know, um, a, an indication, a, a glimpse of how rigid the uh, the class system was in those days and how, and how, how, how much hypocrisy there was but also just how, how these rules were incredibly hard to, uh, to overcome. So that just gives you an idea of just one episode. You know, this is, this is Emma's rise um, from the street to being Lady Howells. And of course, it's not, it's not an ideal situation. She's married to a, a, an old man. Now, the thing about Sir William is that he is and was an attractive character, and an attractive figure. He was... He was the first person to actually study volcanoes. Up to that point, everybody just thought volcanoes were sort of God's way of showing his rage on the planet. You know, and nobody really thought about what they were. So William was one of the very first people, possibly the first person to study them. You know, he had a monk up on Vesuvius creating watercolor sketches of, of the changing uh, state of the volcano. And, uh, you know, these were presented at the Royal Society. He was um, absolutely fascinated by the um, discoveries at Pompeii and Herculaneum, and he was a collector of those things. He was a he was a polymath. He was one of those few people who sort of knew all the knowledge that was noble at that time. You can't do it now. There's too much knowledge. But sort of at that time, you could be one of those people who kind of knew everything that there was that was knowable. And, and I think Emma got a lot out of Sir William. I think their relationship was quite special. It was genuine. Um, they genuinely did love each other. And there was this thing where Sir William knew, and he wrote this, you know, he said, it, it, he said, I always knew when I married you that I would be superannuated. You know, in other words, time was going to be against him. And at some point he would have this vivacious wife and he just simply wouldn't be able to meet her needs. He understood that. And so we got this extraordinary, the trio juncto in uno, where Sir William, Nelson and Emma become these the, the three joined in one in a relationship that is unprecedented in, in history and certainly amongst um, famous figures. And that's a, a relationship which, of course, I get to explore and which has not really been explored in any of the films about them uh, to any real depth. Um, you know, so that itself is a fascinating aspect of this. Um, 
but I'm not going to sort of, you know, go through each one hour and tell you exactly how they're structured, only because I think that would be rather a laborious process. I'm just giving you some sort of some hints of some of the really meaty things that are in there. Um, and as is my uh, tendency, of course, I, 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 I get quite passionate about uh, just how just how great this material is. You know, it's just great subject matter. Hey, this show runs off of the passion of people like you, so you do not need to apologise for that in the slightest. It's it's really nice to hear the human element being front and centre of the story. Um, you know, how easy would it be to just go, hey, Nelson's got a great story. Why don't we just sort of have lots of Master and Commander style battles raging across the big screen or the small screen for the course of five episodes? You know, Game of Thrones meets napoleonic naval history kind of thing and it's really nice to see that that's not what what your your approach is it's much more about understanding the human and the humanity within these people's experiences um so i really hope that this takes off i know you've been banging this drum for a little while in terms of trying to get this out there and i think that's a nice point to start to discuss some of the challenges of this genre and it goes back to what i was saying earlier about how you've got lots of people um on social media on youtube going this film is going to be absolutely brilliant because it and i'm quoting one commentator here sticks to the law of napoleonic history as if napoleonic history is about law and um all of those things you know it's, it's not a disney production people and you've got others who are going Ridley Scott's a cretin and he doesn't know what he's doing. And, you know, Napoleon never led a cavalry charge. The entire film's going to be bogus and useless and and all the rest of it. And then you've got people in the middle like me who are just kind of going, um, are we forgetting the need to actually be a little bit grateful here? Because we haven't had a massive production of this scale since, I think, probably 1970 with Bondachuk's Waterloo. Suddenly we've got this ultra high profile film hitting the screens um and that's going to be something that people like me can then use as a, a hook to engage people so i'm looking at it and going sure there are going to be errors in it because it's a film it's not a documentary if ridley scott was in the business of documentaries then i'd have problems um so that's a very obvious one and it's probably the most high profile you know people with their opinions coming in and going oh this is all 100 historically accurate or it's not and therefore it's brilliant or it's useless and should be thrown in the bin because of that. And you, of course, have to do the balancing act. You know, I have the easy job is that I can sit here and critique and go, well, this is good and this is not so good. And then how do I feel on balance? It, this ends up being your baby. And so when people start to get involved in that, actually it's to an extent a personal kind of attack on your competency. So I'm curious about how you manage that. But there are other challenges around this, you know, CGI versus non-CGI um making sure that it's a story that a modern society can engage in because the way in which we would have told this story back in the 1970s is very different to how we tell it now 50 years later so i'm curious about how you kind of navigate this sort of complex juggling act that is trying to produce something that tries to please as many people as possible but inevitably is going to draw flack sometimes quite hostile flack from other areas yeah, well, I mean, you know, if you are in the arena of creating art, then you 
you are you are exposing yourself to criticism and that that simply comes comes with it what you hope is that you're just true to yourself that you don't compromise on the things you believe in um and my vision for this was that it should be a a telling of this story that is based in deep research but which at the same time engages the audience emotionally because when you are enjoying a film, it's because your emotions are engaged. And when you become bored, it means that you have disconnected emotionally from the characters. You don't care. You don't care about what is going to happen and you don't care what's happening. And that's where the craft of screenwriting comes in. The, the screenwriter learns the simple tricks of holding the attention of the audience while telling the story they want to tell. And I use, I use those tricks in this film in that every filmmaker knows every storyteller knows that every film has to have three acts some people call it five acts but it at its in its simplest form it's three acts and in in its simplest explanation it is what does your character want uh now let's find out if they get it and what happens after they get it that that every film you watch has that has that shape uh and that question mark, what does your character want, is usually answered at a very, uh, quite an early point in the story. And when you're watching a movie, there's a, usually a point um, about, I think it's usually about 15 minutes in. I can't remember the exact point, but it's very precise. And if that doesn't happen, you start to get restless. You start to go, Wait, what's, what, sorry, what? What do, what do we, you know, you kind of start to wonder why you're sitting there, you know. So those things I need to be true to. Otherwise, I simply lose my audience. But my vision for this was that the, the, the events that are unfolding should be, should all be based in deep research. And, you know, I had a lot of fun kind of trying to bring in lots of detail because I think detail is where it comes to life. Detail in what happened, but also in, you know, what people are saying. Um, the little incidents, you know, I don't on the whole make stuff up because when you've got so much material to draw on, you can always find something real that serves the purpose you need at a certain moment. And one of my kind of rules in screenwriting is that you should never be obvious in the way that you deliver emotion. I have an absolute favorite scene from all movies and it's, um, it's from, a, it's from a, uh, the, um, the film Scrooge, which was made, I think, 1951. Um, and in that film, um, Bob Cratchit, there's this, this really, tra it's, it's basically obviously based on uh, Dickens's A Christmas Carol. And in that film, uh, Tiny Tim dies in one of the, um, during the, one of the visitations of the ghosts, that we are shown a scenario where Tiny Tim dies. And Bob Cratchit, um, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tells his wife, there's a scene where he tells his wife that he's found the perfect place to bury him. And it's such brilliant writing because when you want an audience to be moved, don't show a character crying their eyes out and, and letting all that emotion out. You're going to move an audience if you show a character trying not to cry, trying to find some way to cope in a positive way. And Bob Cratchit starts talking about he's found this beautiful little patch of ground under the shade of a tree, you know, and he's he's really happy because he's found this perfect place to bury this son that he adored. And in his happiness with this perfect spot, you find yourself absolutely, you know, the emotion comes out of you. That is perfect screenwriting and it's perfect writing and it's from Dickens, you know, great writer. And that's one of my one of my models whenever I'm writing is to find to go against the grain of the obvious, never write on the nose. If you write on the nose, it's 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 um, uh, failing to understand how audiences work and how emotion works. So that's one of my sort of guiding principles. And to give an example, you know, there's a moment when Emma has to give up Emma Carew, and I and I show the courage of of how she copes with that, you know. And it's not just Emma crying her eyes out, and therefore you, the audience, must now cry your eyes out with Emma. It's it's much more subtle than that. And there's another example that I give where, I'll give you now where, you know, Nelson's marriage uh, disintegrated quite quickly when he returned from Naples in uh, 1800 with Emma in tow with Sir William. And Nelson had this crazy idea that somehow he was going to make this work. You know, he could carry on having his affair with Emma, remaining friends with Sir William and continue his marriage so that everybody would think he was a respectable figure and could continue working his way up through the ranks. And he was trying to hold it together. It was an impossible, he was trying to square an impossible circle. And it all came to a head one day at the break at breakfast with Fanny in their house in London. Now, bad writing would just have them have a row and she would walk out. But I found that this, this lawyer um, called William Hazelwood, Nelson's lawyer, he was invited for, to, to join that breakfast. Um, and can you imagine being so being this man and finding yourself? You know, you're thinking, oh, this is rather nice. I've been invited to breakfast with Lord Nelson. You know, this would be really... And then you find yourself at the disintegration of this marriage, the unbearable embarrassment of that. So I kind of thought, well, let's keep that. Let's let's tell it, you know, as it happened, because that's really... That man's embarrassment will bring the emotions of this scene to life because we will empathise with him. We've all been in situations where two people start having a row and you just feel absolutely mortified to be there, you know, and he was caught up in this really huge hero and his wife. So that, so I told it from that, you know, from that point of view, always looking whenever I write a scene for a way to make it interesting and for a way to, a way to make the audience um, engage with it and feel that it was real, you know, have, have little details that make it come to life and you're sitting there going, Oh, this actually happened. That's, that's really interesting, you know. So that's what I'm always looking for. 
and in terms of that when you're you're doing that inevitably there are going to be references to combat and and i'd imagine there will be battle scenes within that where do you stand on the cgi debate is that a route that you're up for heading down or would you rather invest a what will inevitably be a substantial proportion of the budget in something that's a little bit more authentic because the challenge inevitably sure cgi is not cheap but if you've got to build a set and you've got to work out scales and all the rest of it and can you use that set multiple times these are are big challenges especially if it's a naval battle it's not as though you can just pitch up on a, a square of land and you know have at it you've got to hire a tank tank being a relative term but as i understand it you know you've got these massive uh, they, they filmed titanic and master and commander in these things didn't they and possibly bits of parts of the caribbean so there's a lot of expense that goes into even small scale naval engagement recreations if you're going to do it in uh an in, inverted commas authentic way yeah well obviously this is something i've thought about a great deal and it was interesting that you mentioned the parts of the caribbean because um one of the things i heard was that you know on on that film um they they did have a full-scale ship and they took it out into the water and then when they got out there, they were filming. And of course, a lot of the time when you're filming on a ship, you can't actually see the water because these ships are quite high up. Um, and so they hadn't really thought that through. They could have shot those bits in studios easily. Um, and a lot of care and thought can save you a huge amount of money on that front. Um, what I would say is that um, these decisions will not will probably be taken out of my hand. That's the first thing. But they are things I've thought about a great deal. Um, the other thing is that Matt Plummer, who has been a producer on this from the beginning, is one of the most senior people in the CGI business. Uh, he was uh, a top executive at uh, Double Negative for many years. Now he works for another company. So he has had many, uh, many years to think about the CGI element in this. And you know, CGI can be done badly and it can be done well. When it's done well, you don't know that you're watching CGI. That's how you know it's good. Um, if you are talking about something like Trafalgar, where, you know, Nelson's got to look out and see the great um, uh, arc shape of this Franco-Spanish fleet, there's no way that anybody's going to put real ships to sea to create that image. Um, but we are now in an era where it can be done really well with CGI. You know, it's got to be done with good taste. Um, and those things are, they come from the director. And, you know, Ridley Scott is Ridley Scott because of his taste. In uh, You know, the decisions he makes are, in my opinion, often absolutely incredibly brilliant. Um, I'll be first in line to watch uh, the Napoleon film. I'm excited about it. And I'm really excited that with the um, idea that it might be a really big hit, you know, that, that it really does well, because that will transform the landscape to an extent and, and uh, really help my project a lot. Because as soon as something does well and makes a lot of money, the industry starts going, oh, right, who else is, you know, who else has got something? Um, so, you know, I, I've really got my fingers crossed on that. But, um, yeah, there's also going to be a lot of pressure on me to do rewrites where I reduce the cost of the film um by reducing these big battle scenes um when i've written the battle scenes you know i've been really careful to be very precise about you know what you're seeing because there's a well way of telling these battles and, and, and each of the battles is a sort of story in its own right and, and your job as screenwriter is to tell the audience 
you know, what happened in this battle that made it go one way or the other? What was the reason, you know? And with each of Nelson's battles, there's a fascinating set of reasons why he triumphed, you know, and he was using different qualities and virtues in each battle to produce those results. And there were some qualities and virtues which were overriding um, and which were features of each battle, such as his enormous boldness, this incredible confidence, which caused him to make decisions that no other commander of that era would have dared to make. Um, and these are the one, these are the things that made him a genius in battle. But then there's lots of little tiny things. You know, I'm thinking of the Battle of Copenhagen, which was his hardest fought battle and not a well-known battle uh, amongst the general public. Um, and this is where he takes the British fleet right into Copenhagen. It's incredibly dangerous because it's, there are shoals everywhere. All of the boys and things have been removed because of the delays caused by putting uh, Sir Hyde Parker in charge of this uh, battle. Um, Nelson has just leapfrogged Sir Hyde just through sheer personality. He's just basically left Sir Hyde in the dust and taken over. So he's now he's now in this battle. He's got he's got the ships in. Some of them have grounded, and they're just toe-to-toe, toe-to-toe, pummeling each other. They're, they're equally matched in terms of firepower. The Danes are able to resupply from shore because these are hulks. And because they're hulks, they can point them, you know, because they can just use ropes to point the ships anywhere they want. So he's at a huge disadvantage in some ways. In fact, in many ways, and it's just the superiority of the of the gunners, ultimately, that probably, probably uh, made the difference. But there was a point in that battle where Nelson felt the need to write a, 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 a short letter to the Danes. And it was basically offering them, you know, a, uh, uh, a he would be saying something like, I would regard it as my greatest victory of all time if you would, uh, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. And there's literally cannibals flying through this, his, his great cabin at this point, you know, and, Somebody says, well, we haven't got a proper seal, but we could use one of these things called a wafer, which you just licked, you know, a bit like a modern thing. And he's like, no, that doesn't give the right impression. We need to have a proper wax seal. We can't have them thinking that we're bothered by their gunfire, you know. He's basically saying, we need them to think that I'm sitting up here in a fully functioning office and, you know, sort of writing letters as if it was a normal day. So somebody has to go off to get this wax and their head gets knocked off with a cannonball. And someone comes back and says, you know, sorry, he, he didn't make it. Well, send someone else. We need the wax. And this is a this is one of those things that marks him out as different from other leaders because nobody, almost nobody else would have insisted on that. But when this thing arrives on shore, they're like, Christ, they're still doing sealing wax over there. You know, I thought they would be, you know, sort of all lying on the floor with these cannibals shooting. You know. It's a complete lie. Nelson was very, you know, the, the situation was pretty dire. Um, and by this point, Sir Hyde Parker had already sent his his signal telling them to withdraw. <clears throat> and you know, this is where Nelson said his famous quote, you know, I really do not see the signal. I have a right to be blind sometimes. But not everybody in the British fleet felt able to ignore that signal. And one ship did actually turn and, and with the intention of retreating. And they consequently were raked with enemy fire. Every, almost everybody was killed. The captain was cut in half, you know. Um, every battle, <clears throat> there's some, some amazing little details which show the great 
leadership qualities and the great fighting qualities of Nelson, which are inspiring to me, not because I am going into the army and intending to fight wars. And I, you probably feel this too, Zach. You know, we study these great stories of warfare, but we're not people who want wars. We're not people who want to go to war. But we find metaphors in these people and in these events for our own lives. We find courage for our own lives in these glorious metaphors. Everybody needs courage. And that's one of the great, uh, for me, one of the great selling points of my project for Falga is it's about courage, which we all need. It doesn't matter whether you are facing cancer or you're facing terrible setbacks in your life, your career, you're going to find inspiring qualities in in this story and in this man which are going to enrich you and that's that's the driving force here these are just really colorful real stories everything about them is magnificent but we're not glorifying in the in the blood and gore of these things which we abhor and we recognize and you and i know from reading accounts of the wounded and the hospitals and the suffering you know that that there's an enormous amount of terrible, terrible sadness in these stories as well. But these are stories, they're real, but we can enjoy them now, you know. They're in the past, we can we can enjoy them. Absolutely, you don't study, for me at least, um, people beg to differ, it's not for me to tell people what to think, but it's, it's not about, oh look, you know, so-and-so advanced with 10,000 men and there were 33 ships of the line and, you know, they had a, an average of... Um, 860 crew to a ship that that's that's not what the history is about it's about the human the human at the heart of the conflict and for me the passion has always been how the hell to ordinary people because we're all just ordinary people and some of us end up demonstrating extraordinary conduct in exceptional circumstances how do these ordinary people cope with the absolute hellhole that is conflict um so, I hope this gets produced because I want to watch it. <laughs> Great, good, good. I, I know my listeners um, will be interested in the the personal dynamics. And we, with one eye on the time, I, I guess we should perhaps um, just focus on one, which is the Nelson Wellington dynamic in that very brief moment where they they interact with one another. The, the Wellington version dominates the, the narrative. I don't actually know if we have a, a Nelson um, account of that uh, discussion, but it seems as though Nelson comes across as very vain, uh, very changeable as well, um, full of his own self-importance, um, as if Wellington wasn't vain or full of his own <laughs> self-importance. Irony there. Um, are you going to cover that? I can't imagine it's a hugely significant um moment in the context of your story and it's actually not a particularly significant moment in the course of history it's just one of those things that wellington fans do love to to shout about um yes. what, what's your take on the whole thing well this is 1805 so you know nelson has just been chasing the french fleet um across to martinique and he'd been away for two years without setting foot on land once um and he'd kept those ships you know it together um, he had suffered the terrible anxiety of have I lost the French fleet? Have they gone back? Are they now protecting the channel for Napoleon's army of invasion? You know, have I been responsible for 
losing my country to the French invasion, you know, because Napoleon had planned this invasion for years. He had 100,000 barges massed at Boulogne. Um, he had even minted a coin celebrating a successful invasion of, uh, of England. Um, so he got back and he was being treated as a hero everywhere he went, mobbed on the streets. Um, he was somewhat wizened from the stresses of these two years. And um, this meeting occurred in the colonial office while they were both being kept waiting by Lord Castlereagh. And as you say, initially, so Wellington and Nelson, by chance, thrown together in a waiting room and they start chatting. Uh, and N N Wellington is very unimpressed. He, he, he found him um, self-obsessed and, and vain and uh, just sort of um, talking kind of in a very unappealing manner. So Wellington wanders out and probably the office um, clerk or something, he, he said, who is that in there? And he, he goes, well, sir, that is, uh, that is Lord Nelson. Why he didn't? Sorry, yeah, this is Nelson who's popped out. Because of course, Nelson himself is very, very recognizable. He's got one arm. He wears a sort of green shade over his, um, over his eye. Um, and so it's Wellington who's popped out and has been, uh, it's Nelson, sorry, who's popped out. And, and has been told that is um, uh, Lord Wesley, the Honourable Arthur Wesley, Major General. So now Nelson's thought, oh, right, so he's someone. So then he comes back in and they sort of start the conversation again. And now so, uh, Wellington writes, I don't know that I ever had a conversation that interested me more. And he says he was really a very superior man. And Castlereagh kept them waiting for, I think, up to 45 minutes. So it was a long and involved conversation. So you can either judge and say, oh, Nelson's clearly a very shallow man who only gives his best when he realizes somebody is important. Um, but on the other hand, you know, he was also, I think, somebody with a little bit of social anxiety, you know, and I think that we're not always at our best when we are not, you know, um, actually prepared or thinking about an encounter. Just when you're out in public, you know, we're not always showing our absolute best person. So it just took him a moment to sort of rally and go, oh, it's 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 what it's, it's um you know, Lord Wesley. I I'd like him to really find out who I really am, and he ends up regarding Nelson as. You know, he 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 says that Nelson was talking about military affairs, politics, everything, and he he was incredibly impressed. So I don't judge him too harshly for that. But on the other hand, I do not claim that Nelson is uh, a god. You know, I I I'm not a Nelson bore in that I don't go around getting upset or furious when anybody criticizes him about anything because he was a man with the feet of clay. And one of the things that I'm doing for the very first time is exploring the events in Naples in 1799 when Nelson got out of his depth, uh, the uh, Neapolitan rebels, the Parthenopean Republic leaders were rounded up when Nelson retook Naples. And what unfolded was grim and grisly and Nelson got his hands very dirty. Um, and he was newly in love with Emma and this passionate love affair was right at the center of this. Now, Nelson, Emma, and Sir William were there in Naples. This extraordinary trio, Junto in Uno, were, were really shaping political events on the ground in a foreign country in the most extraordinary way. 
and I explore that. Um, and I, I really did a huge amount of research into what happened. And I tell it from the point of view of Nelson and Emma, because that's what my story is. I'm not, I'm not telling this story from the point of view of the Parthenopean Republic. Uh, I'm telling it from the point of view of Nelson and Emma. And I feel that there are mitigating circumstances um, around what happened, but I'm not um, distorting it uh, and going out of my way to whitewash what happened. And one of the things that's very grown up about my, my project is the way I handle that episode. And the big question mark is, what are the audience going to think of Nelson after that? Are they still going to be prepared to continue on this journey with him? And, and uh, are they going to still feel the emotion at the moment when he's shot at Trafalgar? And I think the answer is yes, they will, because they will have been on this extraordinary journey where we, they will have discovered the full rounded picture of this human being. And so by then he will be a very real person to them. And they will understand that he wasn't perfect and that in bloody times when, you know, terrible things are happening, it's very hard to keep your hands clean, almost impossible. Uh, so I think that's one of the things that can make this even more moving because it's so much more moving when somebody dies who feels very real to you, you know, and of course by then he has so adored by his country that he's being mobbed like all four, all four Beatles, you know, wherever he goes on the streets of London, crowds are forming, people are trying to touch him, you know, because he had delivered this series of victories and now he was setting off to fight his last battle. You know, it's it, it's a, an extraordinary moment of a nation pouring all of their feeling into one person. Um, and it's, it's what makes this story really uh, stand out because it's a story of fame as well, which is a very modern phenomenon. It's a story of fame and celebrity. Again, and I don't want to sort of tie your production to Ridley Scott's or even suggest that you're influenced by the way in which Ridley Scott seems to have crafted his his production. But there is a, a telling parallel there in that it's been noticeable that the whiff of grape shot, much though it is overhyped and there's actually a lot of mythology and Napoleon's role within that really isn't everything that it's made out to be. But the whiff of grape shot is shown in its horror in the trailer itself. So straight away, you're being forced to confront the fact that, well, you've got this perception of Napoleon, this great glorious leader, and yet, actually, are we okay with this? We've also got the the um, ice and the lakes of Austerlitz, which again is mythologizing. Hmm. Less than 10 people are thought to have died as a result of drowning in the lakes. Um, following investigations and yet again you're being forced to confront the fact hang on you've got these soldiers and napoleon's firing on the lakes he's deliberately drowning these guys oh, oh, how do we feel about that and i'm hoping that what you're suggesting with your production what we're seeing there is going to be part of a more mature more frank confrontation of a lot of the facts uh, okay, so yes, when it comes to what's being shown in Napoleon, we're looking more at the mythologizing. But nonetheless, you're being forced to confront the popular perception and go, well, is this okay? Or isn't it okay? And come to your own conclusion about it. And I really hope that that's going to be a trend in terms of how we look at these folks going forwards, rather than we've got a hero 
and we're yeah. going to sort of turn it into a Disney style um, hero yes. versus villain. Who is the bad guy? And actually, well, all of these people are human. You know, this this isn't Hitler we're talking about or something. Do you know what I mean? And, and so we get that more honest reflection of their characters. Um, I guess we should start talking about where you're at in terms of the journey and, and what's next and sort of the hoops that you're having to jump through in order to get this produced how are things progressing yeah so um uh sorry i'm just so yeah so um as i said the scripts are fully written i've recently launched a very detailed i think you've seen it a um detailed um pitch deck which uh is going out to 200 sort of industry insiders and um and movers and shakers. Um, now, <clears throat> I have actually already had a bit of a nibble from quite a big uh, American figure who has the power actually to really make this thing happen. But that's something that I can't really talk about at the moment, much as I want, but there's quite a lot that needs to happen uh, before that becomes real. So I'm sort of in a quite a, quite a key f- uh, phase at the moment, but it's very much a case of finding partners in the industry who you know get it get get what i'm trying to do and, and and understand that it's exciting and also have a vision for how to do that and have the ambition to create something on quite a big scale um which is a lot to ask and a lot of people in the industry they look at this and they just go too ambitious you know uh can't be done and in a way you know that's it's always in a way it's helpful to get a no because then you know well you don't have to waste any more time on that avenue but um, things could change, you know, in in the blink of an eye. And my job is to do the best job I can in presenting uh, what I'm trying to do, uh, presenting the vision, trying to infect people with that excitement and belief that something like this is possible and would be great. Um, and that's sort of what I'm doing at the moment. That's, that's my sort of day-to-day activity at the moment. Um, and, you know, quite a lot needs to happen. But where we are in a strong position is that you know we have a strong vision for this the research has been done initially i was commissioned by um working title television so i was able to actually put in three years of 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 hard research and that is very valuable because somebody starting from scratch trying to write this thing would have to do that research um and that would you know you'd have to pay somebody to go off and do that research that person would need to be also a very skilled screenwriter. So ultimately, you're talking about finding a, a probably a quite a high uh, and expensive screenwriter who's prepared to spend a very large amount of time really getting inside this story and not just grabbing a biography, buying the rights, and then just telling the Nelson story. It's much more than that. It's in what it is in my mind. It is it is telling this as an audio visual experience for the first time. Uh, with all of its nuance and all of the fantastic aspects of the story, giving it the space to really, really take people inside this amazing uh, roller coaster of an emotional journey. And how can people get behind the project and support it? I, I can't imagine that public support counts for a huge amount, but nonetheless, if there is a vein of interest, um, you know, there's a reason why you've set up a social media accounts um 
if there is a lot of if there is a public mood to get behind something like this then surely that kind of is something that you can at least include in sort of the uh, half a sentence in an email or whatever it might be how can people get behind this because there's a lot of love for master and commander so there's a lot of affinity for well done naval history screen productions um and i'm sure a lot of listeners are going to listen to this and think actually this is interesting and i want to see how things go on it yeah i mean i would love to tap into that wonderful master and commander uh fan base you know which i know is quite active you know and i know they're often talking about you know where where is the next master and commander coming from and um i use images from master and commander in my pitch deck a lot because uh, i love peter weir's um approach to the visual, you know, he, he it was just clear that the research had been done, you know, um, the way they portrayed those men on those ships. It just, uh, and having done a lot of that research myself, I could see so much of it was was accurate. There was a lot, there was a lot behind the scenes in, in, in that you could see a lot of people have been working very hard to create an authentic um, series of images there. Um, so, yes, I have uh, several ways that people can, support my project uh, and um, trafalgar.tv is a website where you can sort of sign up to be just kept informed, you know, and just the very fact that you sign up means that I can point to this number of supporters. Uh, it's in the several thousands at the moment, but I probably need to get it up to, you know, something amazing like 50,000 in order to really say to producers, by the way, we've got this quite substantial um fan base already you know so that's trafalgar.tv which um <clears throat> is also the twitter uh name that i very occasionally post under i'm quite i have a quite a big facebook page also for trafalgar.tv um which is just called trafalgar tv uh so those are those are any one of those will it would help me if you just sort of sign up the, the most powerful one for me is if you sign up at uh, trafalgar.tv the website because that is a mailing list. And if you've taken the trouble to add your email address to a mailing list, that means you're kind of, you really just want to know. And and if you're on that mailing list, you'll be the first to hear about major developments. You'll literally be the first to know that this thing is, is moving forward. Um, and, you know, you can write back and, and say to me, oh, I hope you're going to include this scene, Adam, or, you know, I hope you don't make the mistake of showing Emma as this, that, or, you know, the kind of, input that will amuse me and and possibly even influence uh rewrites um so yeah i i'd love i'd love your listeners to you know show their support and to be kept informed folks i'm going to stick the links to all of this in the episode descriptor as usual i'm also going oh, to and i forgot to say i do also have a podcast called trafalgar squared so that is where i talk about everything connected with the uh maritime aspects of the napoleonic wars um so that's trafalgar squared not trafalgar square and i'm guessing that's available through all the standard podcast yeah, channels is it, it is yeah i've done it on acast um but it's widely available yeah fantastic folks i'm going to stick links to all of that um in the descriptor for this so that all you've got to do is click and then do your thing um please do have a little look and do your best to support something like this. You know, there are so many people out there who time and time again have gone 
and I'm one of them, we could do with another master and commander, but in, you know, obviously not a replication and, and a rerun of the same thing, but something different. This is your opportunity. And if you're hyped, as so many people are about the Napoleon film, and you want to see some naval stuff, and boy, mm. did people spit their dummies out <laughs> quite rightly um, when they saw the scene of Wellington and Napoleon ostensibly on Bellerophon, but it was actually filmed, of course, on HMS Victory. Um, if you if you had issues with that and you want to see some naval history done properly, look, here's an opportunity. All you've got to do is expend a tiny amount of electricity in terms of mm. joining a mailing list and following a social media account. Get behind something like this. So, folks, do all the usual things. I emphasise again the descriptor. It's It's right below where you're listening to this. There'll be hyperlinks. If not, just copy and paste it into Safari or whatever it is that you're using on your phone to listen to this. Get behind something like this. We've all complained often enough about a lack of this kind of thing going out there. This could well be the time, perhaps the only time, and I've said this time and time again, the only time we're going to get to really go to town with this for the next half century. You've waited a long time since Master and Commander. We've waited a long time since Waterloo. We've got the momentum, perhaps, from the Ridley Scott production. I think it's going to sell well at the box office. Lord knows what the review is going to be like on Red Tomato, but we'll we'll get there in due course. This is an opportunity to capitalise on that momentum. So get behind it. Adam, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. Thank you for sharing your passion with us. And I hope that you'll be back at some point to share some exciting updates yeah. on how this is going. Thank you, Zach. I've really enjoyed it. It's been uh, it's been a great chance to you know share my passion and enthusiasm enthusiasm for the project. Folks, if you're new here, remember to hit the subscribe button so that you can find your way back. Much love to all my Patreon supporters and shout outs to my mentioned in dispatches patrons: Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice De Graaf, Lynn Dawson. Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Indiana Fats, Stephen Gillen, Rob Coughlin, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meakin, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Noah Fink, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Auric Ducado, James Fluick, Roger O'Donnell, Natasha Hobday, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, David Graylick, Ted Andrews, David Malinsky, Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgey, Reto the Sci-Fi Fan, Adam Green, Tim Day, Sam Moore, Wyatt Pollock, Armand Darwin, Carol Dixon-Smith, Paul Gasek, and Roland Shark. And the Admirals, John Haynes, JC Kaiser, Mike Guest, Liam Telfer, Todd and Laird Campbell, Graham Swidenbank, Rachel Stark, Mark Duckers, David Maxwell, David Priest. Graham Callister, Sean Sullivan, Stephen Ashworth, Dan Hazelwood, Kate Walcombe, Steve Carter, and Clemens. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars Pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.